Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the, your grace in allowing us to gather in peace. We ask that you help us not take that for granted and that we take this, this time and this opportunity to focus on you and your word and be transformed by it, that we may go forth from here and be a light to a dark and evil world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we saw David defeat Goliath. And before we pick up in the narrative in chapter chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, I want to spend a few minutes just mentioning the prophetic significance of David killing the giant and the prophetic significance of David's entire life, for that matter. David serves as a foreshadowing for the son of David, for Jesus. For example, David was rejected by his brothers. Chapter 17, verse 28, his older brother Eliab called him wicked and insolent. And Eliab mocked David for David's desire to honor God. Likewise, but on a much grander scale, the son of David, Christ, was rejected by his brothers by the vast majority of Israel, he came into his own, and his own received him not, John 1, 11. David destroyed the giant alone. None of the other Israelites helped David. They're all up on the hill watching David go down into the valley and take on and destroy the giant. Likewise, on a much larger scale, the son of David single-handedly, single-handedly won victory at the cross alone, He defeated our arch enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Enemies that we were otherwise helpless before. Helpless before the devil. Helpless in the domain of sin, in the slave market of sin. Helpless when it comes to our last enemy, death. Very similar to the way the Israelite army was helpless before Goliath until the first David came along and defeated Goliath. That's the spiritual victory that the son of David accomplished alone, solo, on the cross. And then there is the physical, material victory that the son of David will accomplish solo in Revelation 19 when he returns with a rumphia from his mouth. The rumphia is the Greek word for the sword that is described protruding from his mouth in Revelation 19. Is that a literal sword? Is that a figurative sword? I don't know. But I know that Revelation 19 describes the sword from his mouth, the end of Revelation 19, as being the device that is used to slaughter the armies that are gathered against the enemies of Israel there at Har Megiddo, or our English word, at Armageddon. And so, like the first David, the son of David, the greater son of David, works alone, spiritually alone on the cross and physically alone when he defeats the armies of Israel. David used the giant's own sword to kill the giant. Jesus, on a much larger scale, the son of David, uses the devil's weapon to defeat the devil. Jesus uses the son of David uses death to defeat the author of death, to defeat the one who created death, the one who is the author of sin and the author of death. And so through the son of David's death, he destroys the author of death. How about the sequencing of David's life? David's life is sequenced like this. First, he is a shepherd then he is persecuted, and then he rules, he rules essentially unabated, essentially unchallenged. I mean, there are minor challenges, but his sovereignty is pretty absolute after David takes the throne. On a much larger scale, the son of David comes first as a shepherd in the first advent. At the end of the first advent, He is persecuted by being arrested, brutalized, and then crucified. And then when he returns in the second advent, he will reign. And his reign will be 
unabated. His reign of sovereignty will be unchallenged until the Gog and Magog revolution at the end of Revelation 20 when he will, or towards the end of Revelation 20, which he will quash quickly by calling fire down from heaven. I say all of these things because the story of David and Goliath is not just some interesting event, some interesting story that we teach our children. It is a story that fits perfectly in the scripture, a story that reveals how the scripture is weaved together intricately, intricately by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, and it reveals that the scripture is packed with prophetic significance from the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and these things interconnect. I tell you these things because I want you to understand the significance of this event where David slaughters the giant and the significance of David's life. These things are pointing to the greater son of David who is revealed in the New Testament. We left off last time with verse 51 of chapter 17, and I'll start off with that verse by way of context. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And what we see here is that the Philistines renege on the deal, right? They renege on the deal because back in verse 9, the deal was, we're going to send out a champion. Remember, the, the giant comes out and says, hey, I'm the champion. You send some champion. He assumes he's going to kill the champion of the, of the Israelites. You send some champion, and whoever wins will submit. The Philistines are, are, are all in favor of the giant's deal when he makes it. And then when the giant is killed, they say, hey, let's retrade the deal. Let's forget the deal. We're out of here. We're done. We're not going to submit to the Israelites. Verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. We're not 100% sure where Sha'arim is In terms of a map, we know the general area, but we do know where Gath and Ekron are. They are located not that far, but certainly a number of miles from the battlefield. The battlefield is here, this valley in terms of, uh, that that is located kind of between Soko and Jarmuth. So this kind of squiggly line on the map is, was the battlefield between David and Goliath. The, the Israelites were camped here on the northern hill and the Philistines on the southern hill. The Philistines flee as soon as David kills the giant. The Philistines flee a number of miles, actually, to Ekron, one of their cities, and to Gath, a number one, another one of their cities. And so the Israelites chase them this distance. Keep reading in verse 53. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. So the Philistines leave so quickly that they leave their stuff there. They don't take their, their belongings with them, and the spoils of war always go to the victor, and so the Israelites plunder their tents. The text here says that David put Goliath's weapons in Goliath's tent. That's the, his tent here. It's Goliath's tent. Now, we know that ultimately the sword that David took from Goliath's sheet, sheath and used to cut his head off, we know that that sword ultimately makes its way to the Israelite priests in the town of Nob. Maybe David dedicated the, to the Lord the, the sword itself and he gave it to the priests. We don't know exactly how the sword made its way into the hands of the priests. When it comes to the head, to the head of the giant that David cut off, it says that David kept it. David keeps it, and he takes it to Jerusalem. As we saw last time, back then, as a sign of victory, as a trophy, 
you would cut your enemy's head off and you would keep the head. David probably kept this head to remind him of God's power, to remind him of God's glory, to remind him, as he said last time, that the battle is the Lord. And so it's the Lord's. And so in verse 54, we see that David took the head to Jerusalem. This is the first of two interpretive issues that we're going to look at tonight. It says it took, he took it to Jerusalem. What's interesting here is that at this time, Jerusalem is not a Jewish city. At this time, Jerusalem is controlled by the Jebusites, and it's not called Jerusalem. It's called Jebus. It won't be a Jewish city until David takes the city from the Jebusites in the next book, in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. And yet, interestingly, sometimes the Jebusites would allow the Israelites to live with them, to live there in Jebus. We read about this in Joshua 15, verse 63. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem... The sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So you say, okay, so what's going on here? The text says that David, in 1 Samuel 17, took the giant's head, we assume as a trophy, to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is controlled not by the Jews, it's controlled by the Jebusites there are really two ways to understand verse 54 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Option number one, shortly after killing the giant, David took the head to Jebus, later called Jerusalem. And the head of the giant was kept there with the Israelites who lived among the Jebusites. That's, that's a possible option because after all, Jebus, later named Jerusalem, is very close to Bethlehem. The other option is the possibility that years after his victory over Goliath, David took the head to the new capital, to the new capital named Jerusalem. I lean more towards option number two because it seems to fit the context. Jerusalem is mentioned nowhere in chapter 17 except right here in verse 54. And in fact, it's mentioned nowhere in, in 1 Samuel. This is the only spot in the entire book that the name Jerusalem is mentioned. And so I think what we're seeing here is a situation where a later writer added this to the text once the city had been taken and renamed Jerusalem. Now, the idea of, of a later writer coming along and adding something to the text should not create any, any anxiety for us from, a, from the sense of inerrancy, right? The, the, the Bible is inerrant, meaning without error. And the Bible is the inspired word of God. And just because some writer later on, a writer a subsequent writer of antiquity added something to the text doesn't create any issues when it comes to inerrancy because the Holy Spirit could have moved later writers to add things to the text. For example, the Psalms, which frequently have a superscript, Psalm of David, like Psalm 23. Okay? The superscript was probably added by a later writer than David who wrote Psalm 23. Well, I believe those superscripts are inspired. And so if someone were to come along in the year 2023 and say, well, let me add this little notation here into the text, then we have an issue. Then we have a problem because the canon has been completed for nearly 2,000 years. So I, I lean more towards option number two, that, that a subsequent writer of antiquity was moved by the Spirit to add that notation that David ultimately took the head to Jerusalem as a trophy to display to the Israelites in their new capital to display the glory of God, to display the work of God, to display the majesty of God. Let's keep reading in verse 55 of 1 Samuel 17. Now, when Saul 
saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. David just brings that head everywhere. He's just displaying God's majesty and God's power everywhere. And I suspect he had to use two hands because for a giant of nine foot nine, that had to be a pretty heavy hand, a pretty heavy head that he would carry with both hands. Keep reading in verse 58. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Saul is asking about David's father because remember in verse 25, Saul promised all these great rewards, not just for the man who would kill the giant, but also for his father's house, to use the language of verse 25. David describes his father as the servant of Saul, as the servant of the king. This reveals David's respect and loyalty for the king. Sadly, as the events transpire of this book of 1 Samuel, Saul will not reciprocate that same respect. Saul will treat David with contempt, although David is respectful towards the king. But here in this passage, we find the second interpretive issue for the evening. It's the one that we saw a few, a few weeks back. At the end of chapter 16, we're given this long description of how Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. Remember in chapter 16, towards the end of chapter 16, the the spirit leaves Saul, and instead of the Holy Spirit moving Saul and and being present with with Saul, with the king, God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. And so one of his servants had the idea, this idea of King Saul, this is how I think you should deal with this torment, your suffering. And the servant said, I've heard a young man, a young man named David, who the servant describes in verse 18 of chapter 16 as a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, and a warrior. The servant thinks that David's musical skills will help the king with this suffering that the king is enduring because of the torment from the evil spirit that God sent. Saul agrees, and I'm I'm still back in chapter 16. Saul agrees. Saul sends messengers to David's father, Jesse, and instructs Jesse to let David come to be added to his court. Jesse sends David. Jesse sends gifts. That's what you do with a dignitary. You send gifts to, to royalty, to a king. So Jesse sends the gifts, sends his son to to join the court of Saul, and David goes, right? David joins the court. David, in fact, becomes very helpful to the king. When he plays the harp, it soothes the king. When he plays the harp, the evil spirit leaves the king because God is moving events to work that way, to to elevate David and to bring down Saul. David is so helpful to Saul that in chapter 16, verse 21, we're told that Saul loved David greatly and appointed him as his armor bearer. That's this long description in chapter 16 about this relationship that David and Saul have, that the king has with David, and that the king really kind of has with with Jesse because he sends messengers to Jesse, and Jesse sends these gifts, and Jesse sends his son to live there in the court. And then in chapter 17, we get a different description, right? In chapter 17, it's as if Saul knows nothing about Jesse and knows very little about David. I think the explanation for this is that the events at the end of chapter 16, verses 14 through 23, happen after Chapter 17. In other words, David kills Goliath before the events of verses 14 through 23. And the writer of 1 Samuel is sequencing the text this way to emphasize David's role in the king's court. To be sure, David's role as a warrior is emphasized. We've seen that in a majestic way already 
in chapter 17. But more important than David's role as a warrior was his role as a king. He would be an exceptional king. The king against which all other kings will be judged. The other kings of Judah are always compared to David. He's the exceptional king. So I think what's happening, the, the, the explanation that, that we have for this, this issue in, the, in the, the disconnect that we have is it's a sequencing issue, that the writer has sequenced it this way. But there is another explanation. There is another explanation for Saul's lack of knowledge. As one of y'all pointed out a few weeks back, and as a number of commentators point out and observe, the torment of the evil spirit may have affected Saul's memory such that Saul forgot David. I mean, that's pretty serious mental messed upness. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean... The idea that you've got David there and he's, you're tormented, psychologically tormented. See, one of the things that we fully don't appreciate is the punishment of God. Because the punishment of God isn't always physical. Sometimes it's even psychological. It's mental. That's part of, I think, why, why mental health is such a crisis in our culture is because it's part of the punishment that God brings to a rebellious people. And so there's another explanation here, which is that there's no sequencing issue at all, and that in chapter 16, those events happened. Saul forgets. Saul forgets this great comfort, the comforter that he's getting, and the the comfort that he's getting through young David. And then in chapter 17, David, who's David? Jesse, who's Jesse? Because his mind is suffering so much under this torment that he forgets all about this. Either one of those explanations is supported by the text. Personally, I lean towards the first explanation. But either one of those explanations works just fine. Now we get to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1, reads like this. Now it came about when he, the he here is David, had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. The last time we've seen Jonathan, or the last time we saw Jonathan was back in chapter 14, and there we saw that Jonathan was a man of courage. Remember Jonathan, he leads a two-man mission. He and his armor-bearer, go over the, the, the cliffs, the, the, the rocky ravines of the town of Mik, Mikmash, and they go to attack the Philistines, and they're successful. God gives them victory, and Jonathan knows it. Jonathan attributes the victory to the Lord, not to anybody else. Jonathan is a man of courage. Jonathan is a man who loves the Lord. And so there's this immediate friendship between David and Jonathan Their friendship is rooted in their like-mindedness. They both trust the Lord. They're both soldiers. They're brothers in arms in the army of the living God, and this binds them together. Now, many times we're going to see, from here on out, a number of times we're going to see the love that David and Jonathan have for each other. Later, when Jonathan is killed by the Philistines, David will grieve with these words. 2 Samuel 1.26, David says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman, meaning stronger than even the romantic love of a woman. Jonathan was to David. So at this point, I need to address an issue, an issue that, frankly, I'd rather not raise because... Even by raising the issue, it, it dignifies what I'm about to talk about. It's an important issue. It's an issue that Bible-believing Christians have been quiet about far too long. There is a lie that is being promoted by seminaries and churches and the clergy. And the lie is promoted either because they are ignorant of the text or because they malevolently misrepresent 
the text. They knowingly lie about the text. And I fear that more often than not, it is the second one of those. The lie is this. They say that David and Jonathan's love for one another was a homosexual love, that they had a homosexual relationship, and that the Bible, therefore, must approve and validate of homosexuality. Because if David is presented in such a great light in the Bible, and if David was involved in this homosexual relationship with Jonathan, then the Bible must approve homosexuality, the lie says. The lie lays out all of those. This is a false teaching that must be addressed in the age in which we live. Fifty years ago, 75 years ago, we just keep on reading through the text. We wouldn't have to address this at all, but what's happened is Bible-believing Christians have been quiet far too long. When all three branches of the federal government promote homosexuality, even homosexual marriage, you know we've been quiet far too long. When states financially persecute people who refuse to support homosexuality and support homosexual marriage, you know we've been quiet far too long. When seminaries and churches and the clergy actively promote homosexuality and homosexual marriage, you know we've been quiet far too long. We are to speak the truth in love, but speak it we must and we will. We are to fear the living God more than a culture who hates him. We are to fear the living God more than a country. This is the part that hurts the most. We are to fear the living God more than our country which hates God. Let's just say it. Let's quit pussyfooting around. Let's just say it. Our country hates God. It's just the truth. There's no way around it. Our laws reflect it. Our media reflects it. Our education reflects it. Our values reflect it. And so we are called to speak the truth in a culture and a country that hate the truth and that hate the author of truth. We will speak it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And so the reason, the reason why interpreting David and Jonathan's relationship as homosexual and therefore validating homosexual, homosexuality, the reason why that is a false teaching is at least threefold. I'm going to focus on three reasons why that's a false teaching this evening. Reason number one. The Mosaic Law spoke of homosexuality as an abomination. We've seen that many times in the past. Leviticus 18, verse 22. Leviticus 20, verse 13. David delights in the Mosaic Law. He delights in the Mosaic Law. He doesn't scoff at the law. He doesn't describe the law as something ugly. No, he delights in the law. Psalm 19, verse 7. This is David speaking. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. David describes the thing that describes homosexuality as an abomination. He describes that thing, the law, as sweet and delightful and perfect and wonderful. So reason number one is that the Mosaic Law spoke of homosexuality as an abomination, and David loves the law. This reason number one as to why this description that the relationship between David and Jonathan was a homosexual relationship, why that is a false teaching. Reason number two is the New Testament depicts homosexuality as a sin that arises from denying God. See, this isn't a garden variety sin. Before God, all sin is an offense. 
Going 66 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour speed zone, that's a sin. And that's an offense to God. Homosexuality is a sin, and that's an offense to God. So, from a general sense, all sin is an offense to God. But different sins have different consequences. Going 66 into 65 is a different consequence than a homosexual relationship. And that's why there are different consequences in the Mosaic Law for different sins. Right? Homosexuality was a capital offense in the Mosaic Law, like other serious sins, like adultery and, other, and, and, and engaging in idolatry. There, there were many capital offenses. But that gives us some sort of indication of the gravity, the seriousness of the sin. And so in the New Testament, homosexuality is depicted as a sin that rises from denying God, from rejecting God. This is why our culture embraces it so wholeheartedly, because it's a product of our rejection of God. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's kind of like a, like, like a seesaw. You reject God, that, t- that, that tips you to the other direction. And so when you have this description in the New Testament of that sin coming from denying God, you can hardly describe Jonathan and David as God deniers. They don't fit the description of a Romans 1, for example. Romans 1, verses 21 through 28. I know I'm putting a lot on the screen there, but it reads like this. Verse 21, this is Paul speaking. For even though they, the they are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 18. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, indecent acts and receiving in their persons, their own persons, the due penalty of their error. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind It all starts in the mind. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. I must say, nothing in this passage fits David or Jonathan. It just doesn't fit anything we know or we will see about David or Jonathan or fit their relationship between those two men. Then the third reason why it's a false teaching to say that the relationship between David and Jonathan was a homosexual relationship, and therefore the Bible validates homosexuality. The third reason is because it's inconsistent with the Hebrew text itself. There are two Hebrew words that are used to describe the love that Jonathan has for David, the love that is between these two men. There are two Hebrew words used in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The two words are first the verb ahav. The verb ahav, it's the cow stem of the verb ahav, which means to like or to love. Then there's the cognate of that verb. The, you know, a cognate is, is think of it like a cousin. Right? You've, got, you've got one word, and then you've got the cousins of that word. And, you know, one word is maybe a verb, and, and, the, and the other verb is, is a noun or an adjective. So the first verb, the first word is a verb, ahav. The second word is, is the cognate, is the noun form of that verb, ahava. So ahav means to love, the cow stem of ahav to love. And then ahava means love or loving. These are the two words that are used to describe the love between these two men, the love between David and, and Jonathan. Guess how many times the word ahav or ahava is used to describe homosexual desire or homosexual love. Anybody want to venture? Zero. Zero times in the Bible. Those words are used 
to describe homosexual activity. Instead, the word, the Hebrew word yada is used to describe homosexual desire or sex. The cow stem of the Hebrew verb yada, which means to know, to know someone or to know someone intimately or sexually. So the men of Sodom are said to yada the angels who looked like men in Genesis 19. The men of Gibeah wanted to yada the Levite who was going through the town of Gibeah, the, the male Levite, all the Levites, the, the Levitical priests were males. In Judges 19, yada is not used with respect to the love between these two men. The verb yada is not used to describe the relationship between David and Jonathan because there is no homosexual relationship between those two men. The reason much of Christianity is confused about love is because we are godless. Our churches are godless. Think about it. A huge portion of our churches reject Christ. It's an oxymoron, right? We call ourselves Christian, but we reject Christ. What does Christian mean? Christian means little Christ. A huge portion of our churches and our clergies and our seminaries are godless, and this is reflected in our vocabulary. That's why we've redefined the word love. We've redefined the word love to match how we think, to match our godless thinking. Homosexuality is thought of as loving. Well, if you think of something that the Bible describes as an abomination as loving, that means you have to change your definition of love. The word that comes out of your mouth, you have to change that word to fit the way you think. And so the word now has a godless meaning because the thought has that godless meaning. We're modifying our vocabulary to match our thinking. This is what happens in the seminaries. This is what happens in the churches. This is what happens in the clergy. And so, of course, this is what happens in the culture. Because when the seminaries and the clergy sneeze, the culture gets a cold. And this is pneumonia. This isn't just some little sniffly cold. The Bible is clear that homosexuality is inconsistent with godly love. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, that great passage about love. You hear it many times at weddings. It's a beautiful passage. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Earlier in the, in the book, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul includes homosexuality in the umbrella of unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Paul gives a list of unrighteousnesses. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are two words that must be exegeted very quickly here. Two words. The word effeminate and the word homosexual. These are very explicit words in the Greek. In the Greek, the word effeminate is malakas, and the word for homosexual is arsenoketes. Let me say that again. Arsenoketes. Arsenoketes. The first word, I'll try and be delicate how I say this, the first word for effeminate is the, the one in the homosexual who's, who's the passive. Let's just say it that way. And that's why it's described as effeminate. And the word for homosexual, that's translated homosexual, is the one in the homosexual act who is active. Maybe that's the most delicate way to say it. What Paul is saying is 
everything about that activity, both spectrums, so to speak, are unrighteous. And so love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That's unrighteous. And so when the culture says, this is about love, when the Supreme Court says, this is about love, when the president says this is about love, when the speaker of the House, the former speaker, or the, the, the leader of the Senate, this is about love. No, it's about something, but it's not about love. At least not God's definition of love. Yet Paul also explains that in Christ there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness and cleansing from the wickedness of unrighteousness. Because in verse 11... Paul gives these wonderful words, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What is that saying? It's saying that these are not immutable characteristics. Nothing in the list that Paul gives in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians is an immutable characteristic. The Corinthians at one time were that way. The Corinthians, he's talking to a Corinthian audience, right? Corinthian believers, or as Ray Steadman used to say, first Californians, right? He's talking to an audience of Californians, or or, I mean Corinthians. And part of the audience fits each of the categories. And so Paul says, you've walked away from those things. Praise God. And you've done it because of the cleansing work of Christ, because the name of Jesus can transform even the vilest offender. Christ paid for all sins. Christ hates the sin and loves the sinner as we should. And there's one final point on love that I need to mention. One final point on love. The devil attacks God's design for romantic love because that love above all others The devil attacks God's design for romantic love, love between a husband and a wife, a male and a female, because that love above all others is intended to teach theology. Let me say that again. The love between a husband and a wife, the romantic love between a husband and a wife is designed by God to display, to teach Theology. This is why the devil attacks it full bore, attacks marriage. Our marriages are falling apart in the culture. Because the devil is attacking it. And we are defenseless because we don't stand on the word of God, because we are ignorant of the word of God. The devil attacks marriage Through homosexuality, and we're just talking about this this one uh, missile that the devil shoots at marriage. He attacks marriage through homosexuality because marriage is designed to teach theology. In Ephesians 5, Paul explains the theological significance of marriage. There the apostle speaks of the bond, the unity between husband and wife, the bond of romantic love. Ephesians 5, 28 So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And now Paul gets in the way back machine and goes all the way back to creation before the fall. In Genesis 2, verse 24, you see that language that's in all caps, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh means the romantic union, the union, the bonding of romantic love between a husband and a wife, the unity of two souls, the unity of two bodies, the unity of two wills, it is self-evident that two male bodies don't go together. And self-evident, I'm trying to be as delicate as I can, 
that two female bodies don't go together. And that reveals that they can't unify in soul the way God has designed them to unify, the way God has designed a husband and a wife to unify. Because one of the wonderful things you have to love about God is that God gives us evidence of the things we can't see. God gives us physical evidence of the immaterial, right? He's designed one flesh between a husband and a wife. Total unity. Unity of physical bodies, unity of souls, unity of will, one flesh. The devil, who's the master counterfeiter, counterfeits that and says, okay, two dudes, that's the same thing. Two women, that's the same thing. Well, physically, they can't unite the same way. And that evidence is that they can't soulishly, if that's a word, unite the same way. The physical incompatibility of that union, in a homosexual union, evidences that it's inappropriate. Evidences that it's an abomination before God. Evidences that they cannot correctly, they can't correctly physically unify, and therefore they cannot correctly soulishly unify. The physical incompatibility reveals the soulish incompatibility in terms of the way God designed marriage, which is only for one woman and one man. Look at verse 32. This mystery, Paul says, is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church Here's the theological point. Here's the theological dimension of your marriage. Here's the theological dimension of the union, the romantic union in marriage of a husband and a wife. Paul describes the one fleshness of husband and wife as a mystery, a mysterion. Now, in the Greek, musterion, as we studied before, it doesn't mean like a, like a Columbo sort of deal where, where, ooh, I'm not sure what it is. It's a mystery novel, and you kind of you dig in it, and you find it out at the end. That, that, that's, not, that's not the way Paul uses mystery. He uses mystery to mean something that was previously undisclosed, something that was previously concealed by God. And then God reveals it and makes it available to all. And so Paul is declaring something amazing. He's saying in the Old Testament, the prophets, Moses, David, they were unaware of something. God concealed from all the men of God and women of God of the Old Testament. He concealed something from them so that he would reveal it to you. It's not that they didn't understand that marriage was significant. Of course they understood that. They understood that clearly in the Old Testament. But what they didn't understand in the Old Testament, what God concealed as a mystery, and then revealed in the New Testament in the church age is that the bond of romantic love between husband and wife teaches theology. It reveals divine will. It teaches about the union between God incarnate and his church. The God-man, Christ, is united with his church the way the husband is united with his wife and the way the wife is united with her husband, the way they are united in one flesh, union of bodies, union of soul, union of will, when a husband loves his wife sacrificially and she submits to his leadership. The unity that is produced reveals the divine truth of the unity between God incarnate and his church. God has designed marriage to reveal theology, to teach it to a world that is dark, to a world that is dying. He has designed marriage to reveal his glory. And of course, single people, widows, widowers, can also reveal God's glory. But those who are married have a special duty. They have a special opportunity to do so through their marriage. So, of course, of course, it's understandable that the devil, that the evil one would attack the romantic love between a husband and a wife through homosexuality. Homosexuality attempts to confuse and counterfeit God's design. 
Homosexuality is one of the devil's tools to cut off the communication of the word of God because the devil hates you. The devil hates humanity. This is why that Jesus described him as a murderer from the beginning. So no, no, no. David and Jonathan were not homosexuals. They did not have a homosexual relationship. That is a lie from the pit of hell. They loved each other the way warriors love each other, the way soldiers in arms are bonded together, are bonded with one another, to one another, attached to one another in loyalty and fidelity and devotion, bound and united in such strength that they're willing to give their lives for each other on the battlefield. That's how these two men were united, were bound to one another. An incredible love between Jonathan and David. And as the book unfolds, we'll see this love referred to many times. So I wanted to take some time today just to address the world's elephant in the room, which is a dead elephant. We'll see this relationship, a great relationship between these two men as the book of 1 Samuel unfolds. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God. We fear you. We respect you. We approach you in awe and wonder. And we ask that you give us courage to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love, but to speak it. We ask that you give us opportunities tomorrow, the next day, this week, the week thereafter, the month thereafter, the year thereafter, to speak your truth for your glory with respect to salvation, with respect to sexual ethics, with respect to financial ethics, with respect to your design for marriage, with respect to all of the attributes of your word. We ask that you take our marriages and you strengthen us and you use us to communicate theology through our marriage. We praise you for all of these things, and we ask that you help us serve you and obey you and bring honor to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.